0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised.
1: On this week's Court TV podcast, after a six-week trial, Grammy Award-winning recording artist R. Kelly was convicted on all counts in his federal sex trafficking trial. Court TV's Julie Janet was on hand for the verdict and has a full report. Then, we'll be joined by Chanley Painter with an update
0: on the hunt for Brian Laundry. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
1: I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Court TV Podcast and for downloading. Uh, this week, uh, we've got a verdict. You know, it's always a... a a big day at court TV when a verdict comes down. And most of the time it's, it's, you know, late in the week, it's usually on a Friday. Uh, but we did get a verdict in a very high profile case that we were covering involving R&B superstar R. Kelly. Now, unfortunately, court TV cameras were not inside the courtroom for that one. And that's because it was in federal court. And uh, folks, if, if you want to see what's happening in federal court, I guess you have to um, not have a job during the day And be able to travel to the courthouse to see it. Because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, Justice Roberts, uh, doesn't want you to see it. Has prohibited cameras and microphones from inside federal courts, coast to coast. Even in cases, by the way, where federal judges were okay with it, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said no. And likewise, the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't have cameras in the courtroom. Why is that? Oh, you know, it, it, it's our it's our government, our courtrooms. But uh, anyway, that's a fight for another day, ladies and gentlemen, but I will never miss an opportunity to remind everyone. Uh, but R. Kelly, uh, it was a big, big verdict and Court TV legal correspondent, Julia Janais, Uh, While we didn't have cameras there, we did have Julia Janae in Brooklyn, New York for all of this. And she joins us now on the podcast. Uh, Julia, how was your time in, in hipster country down there in Brooklyn, New York?
2: Brooklyn's really nice. It was a great place to be, the federal court. Courthouse is huge. It's beautiful. Uh, everyone's very friendly. A lot of people asking us what case we were there for because so many things go on in Brooklyn.
1: Are there any trends that you caught up on that will probably catch on in the rest of the country later that were happening in Brooklyn that I should know of? Like maybe a style of clothing or a, an item to eat or something? Did you come across any of that, Julia? Because I know they're just ahead of us in Brooklyn. They're just they're just way ahead of us.
2: <laughs> I spent the entire time inside a federal court because I couldn't miss a thing. Because of no cameras.
1: Okay. Okay. I was just wondering because I haven't I haven't been to Brooklyn in, in in quite some time. All right. So uh, first of all, Julia Janae, I have not even revealed the verdict. So why don't you describe for us um exactly what the verdict was and, and what it means and, and what the prosecution theory was in all of this.
2: This verdict was guilty on all counts. Kelly faced nine counts in total, one for racketeering, the other six for man act violations, which is the sex trafficking trafficking federal statute. And underneath that count one of racketeering, he had 14 underlying offenses. Jury found that this prosecution proved almost all of them except for one of the Jane Doe's Jane Doe number three. They did not feel there was enough evidence to prove that, but it didn't matter when it came to racketeering because all of the other allegations by Jane Doe's one, two, four, five, and six were proven that was enough. To satisfy the requirement for racketeering. So this jury finding that he used his musical enterprise for the purposes of criminal activity, illegal sexual activity.
1: And when we talk about racketeering, usually we're talking about uh, a member of organized crime. Right, that is running this organization, and they created this racketeering or RICO statute as a way to um, catch them in the net. You know, because these these people who were running, the, you know, the 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 dons, the the heads of these crime families, would never themselves actually do anything. They were insulated, and and under RICO, they were able to kind of swoop them all up and say they were the head of the whole thing. So what they what they allege is that R. Kelly had like a musical career and would. Uh, create music for the purpose of tracking down and, and getting his hands literally and more on young women and girls.
2: Recruiting. That's what the indictment says, that the purpose was for recruiting. But this case really continues to transform Rico because we don't have this idea of all of these mobsters working together for this common goal of everyone getting paid. In this case, the prosecution got up and told this jury, you don't have to believe that any of the members of Kelly's team knew crimes were going on, which it's important. She said that because no employees got on the stand and said they knew that there were underage girls knew that he was doing anything illegal, but she says they still enabled him. And because he used them, to further this purpose that only his criminal intent was required, and that still qualifies as RICO. It's a really different picture than what we typically see for racketeering.
1: It's fascinating, and my guess is is that it will be challenged in some appellate court at some point by someone uh, because you know uh, a theory and, and a use of RICO like that really uh, widens the net in how prosecutors, federal prosecutors, will use it. Uh, fascinating stuff. So um, and, and finally, you know, the, the, the point that R Kelly, and this was a guy, how did he come across during the course of this trial in the way he was described? Was he, because my understanding is, is that he's not educated in that he's not really good at reading and writing. Um, but sometimes that can be just a, a. It can be a product of your upbringing and what opportunities you had and didn't have. Did he come across as someone who was smart, who could manipulate and use people this way? Did he come across as someone who was simple, I mean, what was the picture that this jury got of R. Kelly?
2: Though the defense did bring up often that he used his assistant to write his text messages before there was Siri to do the talk to text. And though apparently he was not very much in tune with what was going on with his money and that they mentioned a couple of times that have they heard that he could not read or write or had difficulty with reading and writing. On the other side, they also heard about what a genius he was, how creative he was, how much of a hard worker he was, how astute he was about uh, his affairs and wanting things to be done a certain way. So I don't think he came across at all as simple. This was clearly someone who has uh, an empire that he built and you really didn't hear much about someone else handling the rise of his career. And seeing him in the courtroom, I think I told you several times when um, we had our hits together, that he was writing. He was reading at the table. He was talking to his attorneys about what was on the paper. So he probably can't write well. He probably can't read well on the, the level that we would expect for someone to be fully functionally literate, but he did not come across as someone who would just be oblivious to everything that's going on because of an educational limitation.
1: And, and to me, that's an important part of this because you're saying he's running this criminal enterprise. It's not just like he's along for the ride or he's, you know, th- to me, that's significant and prosecutors were able to do that. Hey, let's take a listen to one of the um, special agents from uh, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, which is Uh, I never heard of HSI before, but I guess it's it's part of Homeland Security that does investigating of cases, kind of like the FBI. Human
2: smuggling. Yes,
1: human, the human smuggling unit. Fascinating. So let's take a listen to um, their reaction to this really uh, important verdict.
3: For years, Mr. Kelly believed that his power and fame could defy the justice system and allow him to continue his abuse. Today, a jury of Mr. Kelly's peers confirmed what these courageous victims have known for far too long. Mr. Kelly is a prolific serial predator. Despite numerous reports of his destructive abuse over the years, Mr. Kelly's brazen acts of intimidation against his accusers kept him shielded from prosecution. Mr. Kelly had the audacity to engage with his associates to bribe and threaten victims, their families and witnesses, all in an effort to prevent the truth from being told. Make no mistakes. These actions by Mr. Kelly and his associates were not only designed to hide the truth, but to also to keep and continue his destructive ways against the young and vulnerable. In their failed attempt to evade justice, Mr. Kelly and his associates made one critical error. They underestimated the resilience and courage of the victims who refused to be silenced.
1: Now, what's really interesting about all of this, Julie Janais, is how it all started because there were rumors and, 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 and beyond rumors, there was another trial for R. Kelly years ago where he was found not guilty um, for, for similar acts, not running a criminal enterprise, but again, uh, for, for what he did with a young woman, allegedly, but the jury said no. It's that it took a, a docu-series surviving R. Kelly to motivate prosecutors to, to move on this. And I don't understand that. I, that's the part that to me is, is, is puzzling here, is that this is something that after the docuseries came out, there's this groundswell, there's, there's noise being made by the public, there's buzz, and everyone's wondering, well, after we watch the series, why is not this guy been charged with something? And then he was. But from your take from the trial, why did it take a docuseries to get this whole thing going?
2: you know, it's like we're beginning to see a trend of when the defendant is powerful, high profile, a celebrity, or very rich. It takes more than simply an allegation or two for prosecutors to really move. And we've seen that with the Robert Durst trial, with the jinx needing to come out before prosecutors moved on arresting him. Harvey Weinstein, it took The New Yorker and New York Times articles coming out before prosecutors decided they're going to fully go after him, even though they had allegations and people coming to them with evidence before that. So we did hear that in the trial. It was really brought up more by the defense. The prosecution uh, sort of skirted around surviving R. Kelly didn't really make it a center at all of their uh, case. They didn't ask the survivors about surviving R. Kelly and their time on it, except for to maybe uh, quench some of the things that they knew were gonna come out on cross-examination. But you had the defense saying in their closing arguments, you've heard of surviving R. Kelly, but really these, women and victims were surviving off of R. Kelly. They really highlighted that and almost wanted to use it as a way to show this jury, you can't believe what the prosecution is saying, it's really just them reacting to this docu-series that everyone else got on the bandwagon and it's really about money. So that's the challenge when a movie or a documentary comes before the prosecution is there's a question of, Is it just the documentarians that launched this or is this truly in the interest of justice? Yeah,
1: and I hope prosecutors learn a lesson here that we're in a different place now, that when people come to you with evidence and and allegations that you have an obligation to actually pursue it. I mean, it was embarrassing uh, what the prosecutor in New York did initially with Harvey Weinstein, because he was scared and, and, and he knew Weinstein was powerful and influential and all of that. And to me, that was outrageous. That's not your job. It's irrelevant completely irrelevant to to making that decision so so maybe uh with this series of cases uh now as we go forward prosecutors won't be so scared or influenced or you know afraid to go after someone who's rich and powerful uh guess what You've, you've got the power of the entire government behind you and all the resources try the case listen and if the evidence is there it's there this evidence hasn't changed in all these years it was always there all right sorry about that julia Jumping up on the soapbox a little bit. I want these prosecutors to be a little bit more aggressive, that's all, it, when in fact there is evidence and not wait for us in the media to make them try a case. That's not the way it should work. It should be the other way around. They bring the case and we cover it, not we uncover it and then you prosecute it. That's backwards. All right, speaking of the media, Gloria Allred. <laughs> um, you, you know, Gloria and, and I, she, she's my former um, anchor-in-law. Really? Did you know that? Yes, because I used to co-anchor with her daughter, Lisa Bloom, okay. which made Gloria Allred my anchor-in-law, and um, so she spoke. She's represented some of the accusers here. Let's take a listen to her reaction to this dramatic verdict.
4: In their closing argument, the defense had the nerve to bring up the name of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. What they failed to mention is that Martin Luther King Jr. said that quote, "I have a dream." that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character." That is what the jury did today. Based on the evidence, the jury must have concluded that the defendant, R. Kelly, was no Martin Luther King Jr. Instead, R. Kelly is a sexual predator who is guilty of very serious federal crimes. The defense should be ashamed of even mentioning the name of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in any discussion of R. Kelly, a dangerous sexual predator who has harmed so many women and underage girls.
1: Um, that's that's interesting. Gloria Allred does know how to find those pieces of a case and and make a splash and make them resonate. Um. What are your thoughts, uh, Julie Janet, listening to what uh, Gloria Allred had to say uh, after this verdict?
2: I can tell you, defense attorney Deborah O'Canick, pretty much the lead attorney for Kelly, actually talked to Court TV about people making that comparison, saying that he was not trying to compare R. Kelly to Martin Luther King. What we heard during that opening statement was he told these jurors, as many defense attorneys do, when they take jurors back to the Constitution and the American flag and what their purpose is. And he referenced Martin Luther King and what he went through trying to change things and to hold the government responsible. And he also said that these jurors, they don't have to go through what Martin Luther King went through back then in the streets being jailed and maimed, that they just have to vote not guilty and hold the government to their burden of proof. So that's the, the some of the backstory why the defense was not happy about people saying that they were trying to compare R. Kelly to Martin Luther King. But I think even... Saying them in the sentence close to each other can bother those who are on the side of the victims in this case. Uh, but that was just one of those classic defense attorney moves when they open with something that's very uh, out there in terms of not the case itself, but who we are as Americans.
1: Right. And and my guess is that's something that the defense may use often. You know, it's it's, it's it could fit into almost any trial. And there are certain go-to things that they have, and oh, yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll give the defense the benefit of the doubt on that um, for sure. Because, yeah, but I know Gloria pounced on it, and Gloria's a great advocate for for accusers and victims, sure, and, sure. and and uh, you know, is a very strong voice. And uh, you know, that's what's needed, though. I mean, because for many years, many of these cases, the the, the and as we saw here, prosecutors didn't bring charges. And that's because then, oh, it's not enough. We, we need more. We need more. We just have this, this accuser here. It's just not. Well, that's why accusers do need someone to advocate for them. Whether there is or is not a civil lawsuit, you still need someone to advocate for you because it's tough enough being a victim, but then to, to go through the entire system becomes uh, even more uh, traumatic and, and troublesome and difficult to navigate. So uh, that's why I appreciate the work of Gloria Allred. Uh, some people like her, some people don't. I think the bottom line is that in our system, people need uh, a voice and a, rep- and a representative uh, to be very strong for you, just like a strong defense attorney. I'll never fault them either. Um, And and victims, likewise, are entitled to that in our system. Speaking of the defense, let's take a listen because the defense— Didn't necessarily want to speak afterwards, but uh, the microphones were there. Let's take a listen.
3: Based on the evidence, why should he anticipate this verdict? When you go to the discovery,
0: you saw witness after witnesses giving three, four, five different versions as to what they said happened here. The government cherry-picked the version that they thought would be a continuation of the narrative that was first put out by uh, Cheryl Mack and surviving R. Kelly, and they cherry-picked a version and ran with that version. They totally ignore the inconsistencies uh, that all of these witnesses gave in their debriefing. Uh, they tried, and I guess they successfully did it, was to massage it, but it's a situation wherein I don't know if I'm more disappointed in the juror's verdict or the government's
3: action in this case. Thank you very much.
1: There you go. Some, dis- some disappointment and some harsh words, and obviously, uh, that's the job of a defense attorney to not agree uh, with the with the verdict when they're arguing one thing, uh, but also taking a shot at the government for for the way they pursued this case.
2: We've seen that from the beginning in the filings. They've had an issue with this being a racketeering case, saying that. It can't be something that only benefits one person and qualify as an enterprise. Uh, And that's something that the judge actually halted them from getting into when it came to the arguments in front of the jury, because she said the charges are the charges. They've already litigated it out. They had their chance for a motion to dismiss. And it ultimately did not hold in this court. And prosecutors were able to go forward with this being a RICO charge. So it does seem that they are still pretty upset that it was even charged the way that it was that prosecutors were able to go back to 1994 and put together all of these cases which really it was a mountain of evidence for these jurors even ending with these recordings Vinny that we were listening to as media right before the verdict came down it's something that the jury got to hear the media wasn't we petitioned and they let us hear it and you could hear Uh, these highly pornographic sexual encounters and sounds of someone being hit a woman being hit over and over and a man's voice saying you know keep saying these degrading things about yourself say it again say it again and you hear hitting sounds I mean it was horrific to hear so I can only imagine these jurors uh, not if they did hear it but if it was stuck in their mind when they were in the deliberation room it's really hard to unhear and unsee some of those things.
1: Has to be. Has to be. And, and you know, this is a case, too, where I was going in and I was looking at it and I say, it's really a RICO case. But as the evidence came out and we heard um, and you told us, you know, what the evidence was and, and what people were testifying to and then some of the nature of the evidence, it, it, it does make sense. It absolutely makes sense. I think the verdict makes sense uh, as well. So for R. Kelly now, looking forward, there are other cases in other jurisdictions, but. This alone could be game over for him, couldn't it?
2: It could be. There could be a pleas in the other cases. Could be a dismissal of charges. He faces 10 to um, life in this case. So will there be a need to go forward in Illinois? The state charges, though there will be cameras in that one if it does go forward, uh, but also a federal case in Illinois and a case in Minnesota. Those are pending. Judge Donnelly set this out for May 4th as the sentencing date that's 2022 so a lot of time for these other cases to figure out what they're going to do or if they're going to go forward
1: yeah sometimes after a trial like this there's what they call a global plea agreement and there's like you know you put them all together and say you plead guilty to this we dismiss that and here's the amount of time that you're facing but he's like 50 years old now right 54 54 so you know i don't i don't think there there would be any deal for him for less than 20 years do you
2: I know I can't imagine that. So can't because at least one of the counts would be ten to twenty. So for nine counts of guilty, I can't see under twenty years.
1: Yeah, you've got so many victims here. Um, I don't see prosecutors giving away free crimes here. So um, I, I think th- the way this plays out is is that you know. He's going to end up going to trial on a bunch of these and then hope to win some and then hope to win an appeal because that, I think that's all he's got at this point. I really do. So let's take one step back here, Julie Janae, and where we are right now, right? Me Too happened, um, and and now we're looking at people like Bill Cosby. We're looking at people – well, Bill Cosby ended up getting released, but at least a jury found him guilty, Right. And I'm talking here about the way juries react to these cases. A jury found him guilty. Uh, a jury found Harvey Weinstein guilty. A jury found um, R. Kelly guilty. Are we at a point now where the celebrity advantage is gone, especially when it comes to these types of cases? It, it, I almost feel like powerful people, and, and, and it's really men, who are, who are accused of these things while there is a presumption of innocence, um, there's not that that aura that used to be surrounding celebrities that they were somehow targets. I think the the from my perspective, at least, I think the public may look at them a little differently as not being targets, but being in a position of power now. And I and I really think that has changed the world when it comes to uh, sex crimes and celebrities.
2: I think there is a balancing out. There used to be this untouchable wall where. It, You'd hear the phrase, and we heard it in this trial. They don't need to abuse anyone. They don't need to recruit women. Women are throwing themselves at them. Uh, but now there's not that just automatic, oh, well, she must have been asking for it. No, I think jurors absolutely understand that you believe victims. We hear that all the time. And I think jurors understand that you don't automatically dismiss someone's claims and you listen to their stories. And that's what these jurors did. I also want to point out that this wasn't just this jury saying, oh, prosecution, you brought in all of these charges and we believe you because you're the prosecution. They struggled over one of the cases, one of the allegations from Jane Doe number three, That was markedly different than the others. She was someone who said that she was trapped in a room and the door was physically locked. The other Jane Doe's did not testify to that. She said she was drugged and raped while she was unconscious. Nothing else from the other Jane Doe's about being drugged, actually being in trouble with Kelly if they smoked or did anything illicit. Uh, So, it seemed that they were very thoughtful, not just automatically believing what came before them, but going through the elements and felt that the law and facts matched in five of those allegations from the alleged the victims, but not for Jane Doe number three.
1: That's perfect. That's the way the system should work. You know, you judge each case, each incident, each allegation on its own and you don't give any special credence to someone because they're a celebrity and you don't necessarily automatically convict them because they're a celebrity. They're just, you know, they should be treated the same way everyone else is. Julie Janay, Court TV legal correspondent. Great job in uh, Brooklyn. uh, And, and hope to see you at the mothership real soon here at Court TV.
2: See you soon, Vinny.
1: All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, another case that uh, the nation is talking about. It's the, death of Gabby Petito and the search for her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie. That's next.
0: Follow Court TV live over the air uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV and go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
1: So there are a couple of huge lessons I think we're all learning from the case involving the homicide, the killing of Gabby Petito. And it was really, it's, it's sad, it's, it's a reminder, but I think we can take something away from, from this incredible tragedy. And number one, it's, to me, and, and you know, I, I suspected this all along, but I, you know, this the reality of it really hit, and that's that social media and everything you see on there is like reality television. It's all fake. It's all fake. I mean, if you looked at the the video that they posted, that Gabby posted of her and Brian laundry as they're traveling across this country for this amazing adventure, you would be so jealous, so incredibly jealous of not only being young and free and seeing all these amazing things, but being in love and sharing it with someone. And it was all fake. It had nothing to do with the truth. And and to me, that's one lesson from this. The other lesson, and this one I really, uh, to me, is more surprising. You know, there there are people who, and, and I'm talking about Brian Laundrie now, There are people who spend a lot of time that are so concerned about um, protecting the environment and Mother Earth, you know? And that's who Brian Laundrie was. He would get really upset if someone drank water from a plastic bottle. And, And I'm not attacking people who are like that. What I'm attacking is him, who's the hypocrite, who is so concerned about saving Mother Earth but when the entire nation is looking for his fiance and the love of his life, he does nothing, says nothing, and runs away and hides. Complete hypocrite. And, and, it, and it makes me really question what those beliefs are about saving Mother Earth and everything else that was going on in Brian Laundrie's life. Because if you don't have it within you to do something and say something to the parents uh, of Gabby Petito, to anyone... To, to try to help her, then I, I have no time for you. And it, and it has nothing to do with whether or not you committed a homicide or committed a murder. It's that you were with her, and then you came home without her, and we know that she was found alone, dead, the victim of a homicide in the middle of the desert. And you said nothing, and you helped no one. No compassion. No, no, no humanity at all. So don't, I don't even want to hear you and your plastic bottle saving the earth when you won't even do anything uh, to save um, the woman you said that you loved unbelievable i just had to get that off my chest let's get now down to the case Um, i want to bring in court tv legal correspondent chanley painter and chanley i look at this story And and there's two factions of it. There's the investigation into the homicide of Gabby Petito and figuring out exactly what happened to her and who was responsible. And the second part, which is, of course, it's somewhat related and may be completely related. And that's the search for Brian Laundrie, who, according to his parents, went missing, according to the rest of the world, went into hiding. So... Let, let's start with the search for Brian Laundrie and, and I'm, and I'm starting there because I think it's important to do that off the top because, um, he needs to be found because there are a lot of questions that need to be answered, uh, that can only be answered through either, uh, charges in a trial or him speaking and, and, and speaking the truth. So, um, what are your thoughts about where that investigation is and where it's going and, and, and how it's proceeding right now?
5: Well, of course, investigators are tight-lipped on any leads they may have, but Brian Laundrie has been missing Albany for 14 days. His parents reported him missing September 17th. We have a heavily redacted missing person report from the authorities. The search began at the Carlton Nature Reserve in Northport, Florida. That's where his parents said that he went hiking, left his cell phone, left his wallet at home, And they never heard from him again. So for about 10 to 11 days now, authorities, uh, multi-department, federal, state, local authorities have been pursuing him in this 25,000-acre nature reserve, a very vast, unforgiving, 75% water nature reserve with swamp buggies, alligators, snakes, uh, dive teams, heat-seeking drones, and no sign whatsoever of Brian Laundrie. And that's where we are today. They continue to search there. It's much more scaled down now. The FBI, the lead agent, taking on this manhunt for Brian Laundrie, and no sign of him as of yet, or that they're telling us.
1: Now, the the other part of this is there have been different reports from neighbors who said they saw things, and I'm sure investigators are following up on that. But you're getting to the, the source of this information, the parents, and, you know, I understand. A parent is a parent. Uh, the the love of a parent is unconditional, um, regardless of the of the situation. For the most part, parents will do whatever they can do to protect their child. And in this situation, we know that they've already taken steps to protect him legally, because when when once once Gabby's parents figure out something is terribly wrong here, and and this investigation and in the search for Gabby began. Um, He already had a lawyer. He did. And that's not on his own. He's not going out. and. I mean, that's him through his parents uh, are getting him legal counsel before there's ever charges, before there's an accusation, when we just have a missing person. So I know that they will do whatever they need to do to protect their child based on that.
5: Right. And he's only a person of interest right now, officially in the disappearance of Gabby Petito. But even before we knew he was missing, he you're right. He has an attorney. His parents have the attorney. They only speak through their attorney. They did speak the parents to the authorities to say he was missing, but they aren't speaking to the public. Now there was a statement released by this attorney last night, Benny, that says the laundry, Chris and Roberta Laundry, they don't know where Brian is, but they're very concerned and they hope the FBI locate him daily. Their house in Northport, Florida, flanked with media from all over the nation. And protesters, even today, people with megaphones shouting at the laundries when they left their home today, when they returned their home today, yelling justice for Gabby Petito, you are murderers, you're helping your son. That is the life that they are living right now.
1: And at the at the end of the day, it's self-inflicted because you, you may look at it and I look at it and you know, right, the parents are thrust into the middle of all of this, but the timeline, right? She was living in their house so she's a member of the laundry household before this wild cross country adventure begins, correct?
5: Yeah, she lived with Brian in the laundry home for a while. So Brian and Gabby met in New York Long Island in high school, moved together to Florida when his parents did, lived there in that home where the laundries are still today and in their front yard, people are leaving flowers for Gabby because they know that she lived there. And that was also her home. And the authorities spent an entire day searching the laundry home uh, early on in the investigation into Brian Laundry, took a lot out of that home. And she did live there. So it, I'm anticipating what, if anything, they found inside the home.
1: And, and this is my point with she's a member of the household. Together they leave two people in one white van. One person returns in that same white van, and that is September 1st because that's been verified in one of the affidavits that he returned to Florida around 10.30. They have a record of him at 10.30 in the morning um, returning in the van. So when he shows up back home without Gabby, the parents on September 1st know That she's not there, not where she's supposed to be with Brian and with her van. It's her van in
5: her name. Yes, and they don't report anything. It's Gabby Petito's parents who report her missing on September 11th in New York. Not the laundry parents, they don't report her missing. In fact, they only report their son missing after he's been gone for three days or has a three day head start on the authorities. Vinny, it's and that's why the public that's why there's so much outrage surrounding this case and outside the laundry home still to this day. Uh, wanting answers from a family not speaking.
1: And, and whatever happened, happened, okay? And, and we understand at Court TV, you have the right to remain silent. We understand at Court TV that um, uh, the smartest thing any, any suspect or person of interest can do is to hire an attorney. And I get all that. But on September 1st, if the parents just turn around and say, well, where is she? And, and, and whatever he tells them, he tells them. And they say, you need a lawyer. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that, but how about the parents pick up the phone and call up Gabby's parents and say, hey, we've got a real problem here. This is a real problem, and, and, and at least alert them, uh, because when it, there's two parts to it. We don't know what, what state she was in um, physically or, or, or mentally when Brian left. She may have been dead already. We don't know, but she's alone, and whether she's alone and alive or alone and dead both to me are equally, are equally bad in, in, in remaining silent for those 10 days and not picking up the phone and saying something. And, and you have to understand at that point, your life has changed and the relationship you have with, with Gabby's family obviously has changed because of whatever happened between Brian and Gabby. But, that, but you have a responsibility, I think, as a parent as well. You know, at the end of my show, Chanley, I say every night, don't forget to hug the kids. And that's about, um, taking care of your children, but taking care of everyone's children. And, and, and I know, I understand they're adults. They're 22 years old, but I, I, I've got, I've got someone that old in my house right now and and they are still children. Okay. They're not, you you know, yeah, legally they're adults, et cetera. But you know, if you're taking them in to your house, you have a responsibility. And I think that's what has really irked a lot of people and what has made this story as big as it is, in addition to all the obvious, um, social media aspects of it but to me it's the the actions of the of the laundry family that has escalated people's outrage and 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 thirst for justice in this case
5: oh absolutely if you truly love they were engaged to be married together for many years and that's how you would handle a situation if your loved one goes missing or it, it just doesn't jive with how people think People would normally behave, Vinny, in this sort of situation. There has to be something nefarious going on. Otherwise, they would be out in the media wanting to find Gabby when she was missing. Or it's really odd to me, Vinny, that Brian Laundrie's parents haven't been out asking for help in finding Brian Laundrie. They've just been silent the whole time, which makes people think that they know more than what they're saying.
1: And the other part of it is when he goes on this hike, like he goes on a hike without his phone, without his wallet, and goes on this hike at the moment that this story and the search for Gabby is breaking around the country. to me that's you know it, it, that doesn't make any kind of sense. Um, to me, though, the timeline of, of where he was last seen by anyone outside of his own household is really unclear. Now, it might be clearer for investigators, but for the public, I really don't think that timeline of when he actually left the house is super clear. Like, when was the last time someone other than his parents spotted him at that home or, or in the area of, of Northport?
5: Right. It, it, it's not clear. And the authorities aren't saying because it's a very active investigation. Of course, like you mentioned earlier, the online social media sleuths, those coming forward saying that they've seen him here or there, they think they may have spotted him. There's people out searching themselves. We you know Dog the bounty hunter took it upon himself to take it on to try to find and locate Brian Laundrie. There's significant reward money, uh, a bounty for him uh, to find where he's located in this case. So people really trying to. To come forward, even the neighbors at the laundry home saying that what the parents told police may not jive of what they actually witnessed at the home in the days leading up to Brian's disappearance. So there's a lot of speculation out there. Uh, it's hard to confirm it uh, with the authorities not talking.
1: Now, the other part of the case is the continuing investigation into exactly how Gabby died, why she died and who is responsible um, that part, we're hearing very little, but the, the most significant thing that we did here was a preliminary report uh, from the autopsy. The final autopsy result's not in, but it was uh, manner of death, homicide, which is extremely significant. It, it wasn't suicide. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't natural causes. It's homicide, death at the hands of another. So that that completely changes the nature of this investigation. That completely changes uh, the potential Um, nature of the investigation into Brian Laundrie. Uh, But I guess what we're waiting to hear, though, is the actual cause of death here.
5: We are. And there's no certain timeline as for when the final autopsy report would be released. We know in our experience that it takes a couple of weeks, sometimes weeks for an autopsy report to become final if there's additional testing that has to be done. But even if it is finished, the authorities still have this active investigation ongoing. So, highly doubtful they would release the details yet because there may be details in that autopsy report that only the killer would know and they want to keep that close to their vest until they have a, an official suspect in this case so it was huge though to find out the manner of death we don't yet know how she died the cause of her death we'll just have to wait and find out
1: now for for everyone who's followed this story which is a lot of people uh, you know around the around the country and around the globe have taken a look at this and, and trying to figure out what happened. Um, but the discovery of her body was actually seemingly a result of, of social media once again, because if you start searching somewhere in the grand Teton national park, looking for a body, I mean, where do you even start? I mean, thousands and thousands of miles and, and terrain that is different. You have no idea, but apparently the van was spotted by another YouTuber, uh, the, the red, white and Bethune uh, family that that does the same thing, kind of drives around the country and takes pictures of beautiful places. They happen to have their cameras rolling and they spotted that van. And it seems that Gabby's remains were recovered very close to that area.
5: Yeah. What a discovery. That was huge. It's a break in the case because where they spot the van it was walking distance to where her remains were eventually uncovered by the authorities. Without that, we may still not know where Gabby Petito is to this day. So that is huge, this investigation, and to get to her to uh, to get to her remains in a timely manner where they could possibly determine more about how she died or when she died. And then that's, that's huge for investigators in this case. And another testament to how social media has really been pivotal in the investigation and the leads for the authorities and how powerful that can be. And not only social media, but Brian and Gabby, I mean, they were on this trek a long time. They caught the eye of witnesses where they went because they were fighting or arguing. Um, They even have body cam video of a domestic dispute days before she's uh, thought to be uh, dead. And all of that really helps authorities put together a timeline of when she may have died, as well as some vital background to the relationship inside uh, inside the relationship of Brian and Gabby.
1: Yeah, it seems Brian had uh, uh, some issues, some serious issues. Uh, I mean, a friend of Gabby's is quoted in People Magazine as saying he didn't have any friends. And to me, that speaks volumes. I mean... Um, and, and to me, you know, it's, it's good advice. Like don't get into a relationship with someone that doesn't have friends. They don't have friends for a reason. There's something that is just wrong there. There's something going on. Now you talk about the timeline, right? The timeline, they were having lunch and there are a couple of witnesses who've come forward. and It's been verified by the restaurant as well on the 27th, which is the same day that like 30 miles away. Um, The Red, White, and Bethune YouTubers spotted the van around 6 o'clock that night, 6 o'clock, 6.30 at night, and they had lunch about 30 miles away, so to me that really narrows uh, potentially the time uh, that she died. And and a lot of people are wondering: Did something happen in that thirty-mile drive when he is angry and screaming at that restaurant? He's, I don't know, he's arguing about the bill, and and Gabby is trying to apologize for him. And and did something happen in the van in that drive? And then you know, or so I mean, potentially is the van the scene of of, of a homicide, or did or did they drive somewhere and then something happened? Um, or did he just drive somewhere and drop her off and leave her there? You know, I, we don't know the answers to that, but that seems to be the timeline. Is that August twenty seventh is is crucial in all of
5: this? You no, know, it really is. So many unanswered questions for authorities, but they do have that van. They did take that into custody. They're testing everything uh, inside that van and in the laundry home, and overall, just it doesn't look good for Brian Laundry. Given everything that we know, all the circumstantial evidence and the timeline that we do know out there in the media, it's not looking good for him, which makes him being missing, missing even more uh, damaging to what people are thinking about his role in her death.
1: And I think there may be more witnesses and they may not have, you know, Red, White and Bethune came out and spoke publicly. But as you look at their video, there's other Uh, um, campers in the area, I saw saw like a red vehicle that was parked over to the left, and then there's someone else over to the right. And I'm wondering if any of them heard anything or saw anything. Uh, And I'm sure authorities are trying to track them down. And they may very well have seen something, but they just haven't come forward um, to the to the media or to the public, but maybe just to investigators. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping is that they can somehow fill in the blanks because you talk about a potential crime happening in the middle of nowhere. Um, it becomes much more difficult to have any sort of witnesses or anything else. Thank goodness for, 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 the YouTubers. And, you know, oftentimes people try to attack social media in these investigations, but I think we have to acknowledge the world that we live in. If everyone, uh, almost everyone in this country and in this planet is walking around with a camera um, there's going to be evidence out there and, and and people are going to know things. And the more we talk about it, that's when people will come forward. Chanley Painter, I know you have a very busy, busy day today on Court TV as you do every day. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us and we will talk again. And, and hopefully next time we talk about this case, we have a few more answers about what happened to Gabby and where Brian Laundry is. Thanks so much, Chanley.
5: Thanks, Benny.
1: All right, folks, when we come back, I, I'm going to talk about my biggest fear in this case. And, and it's as a as a looking at the case going forward as a homicide. Uh, the biggest fear I have may surprise you a little bit. It may very well surprise you because it's very counterintuitive, um, but it, it, it's, it's the truth.
0: Trust me. We'll talk about that next. In
1: the case involving the homicide of Gabby Petito is that the jurisdiction in the homicide case will lie with federal authorities, that the feds will be in charge of the prosecution. And all of a sudden you're scratching your head saying, what, what, are you kidding me? I mean, uh, shouldn't we be more confident in a federal prosecution of a case? I mean, with all the resources they have and, you know, you turn it into the so-called federal case that all of a sudden that will be better uh, for the prosecution. And, and, and I say, no, it's not. Not in this case. Not at all. And, and let me explain to you. And this is based upon um, my years of experience in, in covering cases and also uh, practicing in the day to day. Federal prosecutors are so much different than state prosecutors. And I've alluded to this in prior podcasts. Um, State prosecutors, it's really simple what their job is for the most part. A crime happens, okay? Someone or something is victimized. Investigators and police go out, try to solve it. They figure out who it is. They give the evidence to the prosecutor. And then the prosecutor tries the case. You know, they charge the person they believe is responsible and then either get them to agree to a plea deal or they take them to trial to attempt to convict them. Very simple. But generally speaking, in our federal system, things don't work that way. That's not the way they they prosecute crimes. It's rare. They do from time to time, but they just don't have as much experience at it. And that's my fear here. Is that you are going to have a federal prosecutor in charge of this case who's not used to or doesn't have the mentality necessary to try a murder case. Okay? Now, if it happened on federal property, chances are this case will be tried in a federal courtroom if there is a murder, if there are murder charges and a, and a murder case. Here's, here's the problem. They don't do it a lot. And as a general rule of thumb, federal prosecutors are very conscious of winning and losing. And, and that's because of the bosses in all these offices, all these um, U.S. attorneys around the country are even more political than local prosecutors, way more political. They all have aspirations to do something, whether it's, it's, it's to, to be a judge, to be a governor, to be a senator, whatever it is. So they don't like to lose cases, and the cases they really don't like to lose are the ones that we, the public, are paying attention to, high-profile cases. So they're very timid in, in, in approaching these cases and sometimes will not bring charges when a state prosecutor with the same set of facts will say, yeah, there's enough here. I'll go convince that jury because they're not scared to lose. I mean, if they're convinced that that they, the, the person that they believe did it um, is responsible and they've got what they believe is enough evidence, they'll go in that courtroom and try to convince that jury. Federal prosecutors, take a look at the cases. Most cases, they've got a, a confession. They've got an audio tape uh, incriminating the defendant. They've got videos incriminating the defendant. They have co-defendants who are cooperating and providing direct evidence of the crime. It's all, they they love direct evidence. They want they want a video of the crime. They want a confession of the crime. And they want one of the co-defendants who was also committing the crime to turn, state, turn evidence for the government and testify against that defendant at trial. They want all of that before they go to trial. And that's the truth. And most of the cases, they have it because most of the cases that the feds try are not classic. A crime happens. We solve it. We charge who we believe is responsible. No, it's like this undercover investigation where the FBI task force is doing some sort of a sting operation. And when they do that, they have people who are undercover um, interacting directly with the, with the target or the defendant. So they get that direct evidence coming from sometimes FBI agents or FBI informants. They will put wires on everybody. They will have surveillance videos or hidden cameras in places. I mean, these cases are built and they're, they're virtually rock solid. And when they're not, you never hear about them because they don't bring the case. They don't bring the trial, okay? So that's that's my fear here is that you're not going to have any direct evidence of the murder of Gabby Petito. It will be a circumstantial case. It will be based upon forensics, timelines, um, motive, perhaps. There'll be all these other things, but there's not going to be a witness. There's not going to be a videotape, and there's not going to be a confession, okay? None of those three are going to exist, and there's not going to be any co-defendant who's going to come into court and testify against the other defendant. Those are all examples of direct evidence, direct evidence. So it's going to be a circumstantial case, and the feds hate circumstantial cases. They don't try as many circumstantial cases as state prosecutors do, because state prosecutors do it day in and day out. Oftentimes, more often than not, that is the only evidence that they have is circumstantial, especially in murder cases. Watch court TV. Watch court TV and and take a look at these cases. It is rare that you have direct evidence. It's always circumstantial. And I'm not saying circumstantial evidence is bad. I think it's actually sometimes um, more compelling than direct evidence. But the feds don't like it. So my biggest fear in, in the investigation and prosecution uh, for the murder of Gabby Petito, is number one, that the feds get the case. Two, the feds don't bring those charges because they don't believe they have enough evidence. And, and three, if they do bring the case, that they have a prosecutor who's just not used to trying those kinds of cases. Those are my fears. They may be based on, uh, you know, maybe they will be able to check all those boxes. In solving this case but that's my fear going in and again i don't know who's going to be uh, who who's, who's going to be charged and what exactly happened we're waiting for all this evidence to come out it's obvious where people are looking uh but until there are, there's an actual indictment and there's a there's a an actual suspect and we hear about the evidence you know i i, I don't know but we will continue to cover it on Court TV, your front row seat to justice day in and day out. We have a big, big fall coming up, uh, big trials. Uh, the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery, the jogger in, in Brunswick, Georgia, three men being tried for that murder. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, um, who fired his gun and shot three people, killing two during the Kenosha riots. That trial also coming up. You can watch uh, gavel-to-gavel coverage of these cases uh, in the Ahmad Arbery shooting death case. It'll be court TV cameras uh, and microphones inside the courtroom to bring you all that action. Uh, But to see it, you've got to get court TV. If you have a digital antenna, um, you find us. And and if you go through your digital antenna and you can't find us, re-scan that antenna uh, so you can pick up our signal. You can also go to courttv.com to find out where to watch us and uh, get all of the great uh, show notes. Uh, uh, so check the show notes here so you get all more information about uh, the R. Kelly case and, of course, the investigation into the death of Gabby Petito and the search for Brian Laundrie. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading the podcast. Have a great week. And as
0: always, don't forget to hug the kids.